don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field. If you're working as an accountant and you lose your job, nobody really notices. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> Robbie Robbie weekly. Little reverse pass. Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio in sunny Cork and I'm joined as always by Murray Kinsella of the 42. How are you Murray? All good Gav, sunny Waterford as well. Happy to report. How are things with you? Yeah, keep on keeping on. I've been listening to a bit of Curtis Mayfield here warming the vocal cords ahead of this podcast and I feel as though I'm very much in the groove. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm in fine form. Bernard, how are things on your end? Excellent, thanks. Yeah, no, um, no music for me in the background but uh, I'm looking forward to the chat. Yeah, loads to talk about. Good news on Leinster's front with umpteen new contracts and um, there's plenty going on in the general rugby world. I think a lot of pay disputes, so we're going to try and get into the uh, IRFU RPI pay dispute a little bit later on. And Bernard is going to take us through the trenches in France as well, where there's a, a little bit of um, where, where, where there are a few developments on that side of things. But we're going to start with the most universally good news, Murray, which is the fact that we have now solidified dates for the return of the Champions Cup and you can take us through it but in an overall sense it's just um, I feel as though it's just such marvellous news it, it doesn't seem as though it was that long ago where we were I think subconsciously nearly writing off this season and you kind of thought of losing that perspective Leinster Saracens game that everybody was looking forward to but now all of a sudden it seems as though the show is back on the road a little bit yeah it's nice to be able to jot a few things into diaries and, and maybe have a bit more of a concrete plan obviously there's always something in the back of your mind going I, I hope nothing goes wrong here and that international travel etc all that goes well but if it does then we have a nice run of what is going to be well really a crazy time in terms of rugby uh, quality rugby fixtures all on top of each other it's going to be really tough on the players and squad depth will be more important than ever but the confirmation from EPCR is that they've put the 2019-20 knockout stage dates in, in the calendar uh, the quarterfinals will take place hopefully on the weekend of 18, 19, 20 of September. You'll follow that with semi-finals, and then you have the final hopefully on the 17th of October. They're still uh, scheduled that for for Marseille in France, but there's an acknowledgement there that things can obviously change with public gathering, international travel restrictions, um, and so that could potentially change. But they're the dates, and then the new season, the 2020-21 season, will start on the weekend of 11, 12, 13 December. So it is really all condensed. It's like it's pretty crazy looking at the the run of games that we're going to have um, if everything goes to plan, starting on the 22nd, 23rd of August with Interpros. You have Interpros the following weekend, Pro 14 semi-finals onto the final the weekend after that. Then you're back into the Champions Cup 2019-20. You have the quarterfinals, semi-finals. You have the new Pro 14 season kicking off after that into the 2019-20 Champions Cup final. And then you've got Test Rugby. So it's looking like there's two weekends there, the end of October, where you might fit in those postponed Six Nations games and then on into hopefully a run of November Tests, three or four, depending on exactly how that all works out. And then you're back into the new 2020-21 season in December. So it really is going to be heavily... Uh, condensed and players are going to be asked uh, a lot of questions physically you've obviously got a Lions tour on the other side of this next next summer so it's going to be a challenging time but listen it's really exciting to have all that rugby back on the calendar now yeah it's going to be such a strange dynamic as well for players Bernard isn't it I remember being with a Claire Hurler 
only, I think, four days after they beat Cork in the 2013 All-Ireland Senior Hurling Final. And they got a message from Davey Fitzgerald laying out their fitness plans for uh, the off-season, so to speak. And I remember he was drinking a can of Carlsberg at the time, like effing and blinding, you know, why can't I enjoy this success? But with the rugby players who win a Pro 14 or win a Champions Cup or what have you uh, in the coming months, there really isn't going to be too much time to rest on your laurels or, or bask in your glory. No, there won't be. But I think given kind of the what's happened, they, they won't complain. They'll, they'll be so appreciative of the opportunity to get back doing what they love. And, um, you know, for the teams who are still in the hunt for for Champions Cup or Challenge Cup uh, um, and who were, you know, contenders for the Pro 14, the chance to to go and actually, you know, have a really good cut at, at, at winning that silverware um, will will be motivation in itself. And, and while, the, you know, the celebrations for the winning teams mightn't be as long um, as, as, as in previous years, I don't think anyone will, will care. It's just back, back playing and doing what they what they love and competing and um you know the guys who've you know we know the Irish provinces are are starting to click back into gear and just you know the timing of today's announcement around you know concrete dates um you know I think it just reinforces that things are starting to slide back into um into place and and you know hopefully by the time uh, we get into September um October and, and, and November that everything is going well and um, you know, we can have some rugby with, with, with crowds there as well, which would be which would be great. Oh, for sure. Murray, you mentioned that the location for the Champions Cup final and the Challenge Cup final is subject to change, scheduled for Marseille as we speak. Would there be a case to be made for the game just not taking place in France if there were no French teams in, in either of those finals? Like, Does that make sense where the uh, authorities may look at just staging a little bit more locally if it was say an, an English and or an Irish team or whatever. Yeah, de- definitely. I think that's definitely going to be a, a strong possibility, particularly if, the, as you say, the French clubs aren't involved in it. Um, and I think it'll maybe even be based around what's been successful, which stadiums have been proven to work. We don't know what the condi- the circumstances will be at that time. It's it's very hard to predict. But I would say there's a lot of scope for for changing things there and and that's the reality of rugby now even in this press release from epcr again they confirmed that they're considering the option of a 24 club heineken champions cup next season this is the second time they've underlined in official statements that they're considering it so i think we can take it as a given that this is very much a, a strong possibility so eight qualifiers from each of the pro 14 top 14 premiership and that would obviously avoid the disputes from france where some big clubs weren't in the top six when the when the season was concluded due to COVID-19. So that's going to be on an exceptional basis next season. So it'll be a different format and that might help with some of the scheduling stuff next season as well. So you, there's got to be a, a willingness to adapt. And I think the final on the 17th of October, potentially the venue will be one aspect of that. What do you make of that, Bernard, the 2014 tournament for next season that we're almost definitely going to see? Could you see that as being a format that could actually stick if it, if it was successful? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth a go. I think, um, uh, you know, I think they need to look at the, the, the competition and, and, and try and, I suppose, get every club, you know, craving it, um, craving success in it again and and whatever format works, works for that. I mean, I think the Irish, we're always going to be completely bought into it it's it's part of our um our nearly our, our our culture now in terms of you know wanting success in that and and that being something that we chase unfortunately in some of the other competitions um you know teams have tended to to target it 
uh, every so often, but not every single year. And, and um, you know, I, I think it has lost a little bit of its, um, how would you say, uniqueness or, or attractiveness um, over the last four or five years. And, you know, I, I'm happy to see any kind of change of format to try and, I suppose, get the right balance and, and, and get it up there again as, as the competition that has that little bit of a different edge and, and that, you know, has in the past created such good memories for, for all rugby fans. Yeah, for sure. When Murray says there that there were French teams uh, outside of the Champions Cup positions who felt a little bit aggrieved at the prospect of not partaking in the competition next season, I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, I, well, I just find it maybe slightly surprising in one sense in that, as you say, for a lot of teams and in a lot of uh, domestic leagues, it, it may not be quite a priority. People say that fairly regularly about about most of the French clubs. We know like clubs like Clermont and Racing pretty much go all out for it to lose. But some of them then, you look at the likes of Lyon, kind of go half-arsed at it uh, when, when they do make it. So is it a case for some of the clubs who are outside of those positions that it's more of a financial motivation to be involved in the Champions Cup, do you think? Or, or is it an actually purely rugby context in which that they're, they're seeking participation for next season? Uh, listen, I think it's it's financial, to be honest. Um, given my, my experience in speaking to, to coaches there, you know, they unless they feel they've got a, a squad that's really, really, really strong, um, they they don't really see their opp- an opportunity to win it. And... Um, they but they still like to be in it because obviously financially, for example, Leon, Leon having a home game against Leinster um, is is far better for the uh, for the cash balance than you know against um, a zebra uh, in in a Challenge Cup. So um, I think you'll find that the teams bar bar Racing, um, Claremont, Toulouse, um, Toulon have probably dropped away. I, I doubt it's really high priority for them until they. They get themselves back um, on a sounder footing, you know, in terms of the roster. Uh, yeah, the rest are probably is mainly financial, to be honest, and, and being able to guarantee, you know, three bumper crowds for for the home games. Just to jump in on that, Gav, the the two teams in seven and eight were Toulouse and Montpellier, um, and whatever at Montpellier. I know some people haven't liked their approach in the last couple of years, but they've made some good signings. You definitely want Toulouse in the Champions Cup, I think, because they're just so much fun, so much history around them, the way they play. Um, so, yeah, I'm all for having them in the ne- next season's comp. Is there any way in which that culture could be changed, Murray, for particularly the French clubs, but also some of the Premiership clubs probably that we've seen over the last few seasons where, again, they haven't necessarily prioritised what is a continental competition and in other sports would be kind of the be-all and end-all and should be the the apex of, of the club game as well in the Northern Hemisphere. Like, whatever bit of 2014 competition, there, there's probably arguments that you could nearly dilute it even with with more teams, but do you foresee any way in which, I, I don't know, the competition could rediscover its luster of, of the mid to late 2000s for some of these clubs, or even just try to become make it more attractive, as Bernard says, for some of the clubs who are on the kind of fringes of, of qualifying for it? Yeah, I suppose we look at it with green tinted glasses because it's always been a big deal since, I suppose, really since Ulster won and then Munster took off. And that's our perspective of it, that it's the biggest deal. I think the top 14 and premiership clubs probably look at the pro 14 and go, it's easy for ye, ye, there's no relegation. It's not as competitive a league. You're resting your players in your actual league competition and ours is much better quality. That would be their perspective on things. And like Bernard will tell you far more about it than me, but having been in France a few times, the history around the top 14, the 
the atmosphere, the love of the competition that the fans have is is long standing and is going to be hard to ever um, break. Not that you want to break it, but it's going to be hard for them ever to all prioritise Europe over that. You've seen the exceptions, as as Bern has mentioned a couple, um, but it's, it's a long history of that. And I suppose there's another way of looking at it that the Pro 14 needs to bring itself up to that level potentially where um, the clubs have to play their strongest teams and, and focus on, on that domestic competition as well. What about you, Bernard? Could you see any way in which it could, um, I don't know, have a, a little bit more allure to some of the clubs whose domestic competitions have that little bit more history, have that little bit more jeopardy, or is it just a case of this is what we have and this is what we're kind of going with for the future? Um, yeah, I think I think it's going to be very difficult in France. Um, you know, the, the, there's such pressure to do well um, in the domestic competition, and you know they live off that that rivalry. Um, going back the last 60, 70 years and, and um, the fans really, you know, they, they have no interest and even, you know, when I was in Grenoble, I mean, even even if we got a team like Harlequins, you know, at home in the Challenge Cup, I mean, you know, you might get 2,000 people in whereas for a top 14 game you get 18, 19,000 people. So it's, it doesn't matter even if the team coming have, you know, internationals or, or big, a big brand or historic club they just don't, it doesn't really whet the appetite in, in, in the majority of the clubs. And it takes a while. And, you know, Guy Noves in Toulouse, he obviously targeted um, Laporte when he's in Toulon. He targeted and, and, you know, they had the players who wanted to to win in Europe. Uh, and obviously then that the fans buy into that. But um, at the moment, unfortunately, I, I think there's, you know, there's less clubs in, in France who who are motivated by it than, um, than there is who are. To, to, to the level of, you know, really giving it their best, uh, their best shot. So I think it will take a while. You know, I think from, you know, probably a, a broadcasting part. Um, you know, just having a real consistency of of broadcasting, having having more people um, having access to it. I mean, in France, in France as well. You know, the the top fourteen has got really good slots um, on Canal Plus, um, but the, the 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 Champions Cup and Challenge Cup kind of jumps across different different uh, broadcasters so again that's just just something that maybe has has become harder for people to see on a regular basis um and yeah it, it just isn't we we don't it's very hard for, for an irish person to understand because it's always been part of, of what we 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 crave but um certainly in france it's it's not high priority for the majority of the clubs is that a danger then for the competition, Murray, though, like in that Irish provinces obviously do look at this competition and, and consider it to be an extremely prestigious part of what they're trying to do, whereas they're, they're in the minority in that. And, and apart from a handful of other clubs across England and France, and, and if you want to say Wales and Scotland, sure, but those clubs don't tend to be in contention much. Um, I don't know. It doesn't seem like the, the healthiest so, uh, sounding competition, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think that has been the fear for the last couple of years, really. And you've probably seen that slight bit of dilution of it. And it is interesting even that when the French are talking about future plans, they're talking about Club World Cups and the allure of that financially and in terms of competition. Um, not to completely talk down the Champions Cup. I mean, you are seeing clubs like Exeter take it more seriously and have a real go at it. Uh, it just seems a little bit more intermittent. And, and as we say, the history of those leagues will always rule out um unless there's a slight uh, change in, in the competition. So it is it is definitely a, a worry and a danger for it, and that's probably why you're seeing the willingness to 
I guess adapt and um, not please the French clubs, but yeah, adapt for them next season because um, you want to keep them involved, you want to keep them interested, and it'll be fascinating to see how it pans out over the next few years. Certainly will. Leinster will be involved in a few months' time with their quarterfinal against Saracens, and they announced today 28 new contracts. And uh, Murray, I think the standout names actually, just within the context of um, of the next couple of months, are Fergus McFadden and Rob Kearney in that, as reported, uh, they will be able to stay on short-term and actually get the send-off that they deserve on the pitch, whether or not it's in front of fans, uh, in, front of, in front of fans is another matter. Yeah, it's great news for those two and for Leinster as well. It makes sense to, to keep them on the short-term. As I say, it's a, a big announcement of new contracts. This is how Leinster usually do it, slightly delayed this season because obviously what, what was going on and various pay cuts in other walks of life and even in, in rugby... Um, it was uh, slightly delayed, but really good news for the province. I think keeping two experienced guys like McFadden and Carney on makes sense, but there's a whole raft of brilliant stories, I suppose, individually, even in there. Devon Toner obviously stays on. James Lowe is extended on for another couple of years. Scott Fardy is remaining there, a guy who would have been coveted in many other places. Um, Dan Levy, Josh van der Fleer, Will Connors, all these excellent back rows, as well as Caelan Doris, who's an international now. There's so much quality that Leinster have retained and they've kept every single player they wanted to keep really i know we spoke about roman salano and he was part of their planning a little bit further down the depth chart but that aside they've retained this massive uh, raft of, of really excellent players players who have provided depth and will provide even more competition for places as they as they improve themselves as well as five new players being promoted from the academy ryan baird and harry byrne Obviously, the two we know most about, they were involved with the Ireland squad this year and look like major prospects at that level. You've got Jack Dunn, a really athletic second row. Tommy O'Brien, who's, again, a talented athlete uh, and probably will slot in the back three. He can play at centre as well, so quite versatile. And then Dan Sheehan, a hooker who hasn't played for the senior team yet, but he's been excellent for Lansdowne in the in the AIL, so he's one to watch out for. James Ryan is among the announcements. He has a central contract with the RFU. The guy who's missing, notably, is, is Gary Ringrose, but our understanding is that he's signed that two-year RFU deal, and it was just the, the fact that the RFU hadn't announced his contract officially is the reason he's not probably on the, the Leinster, um, Leinster update. So loads of quality they've retained. And then the departing players... A couple of, of interesting ones. Joe Tamani obviously had a really good second season with Leinster, but Conor O'Brien's recovered from his hamstring injury and he'll probably be expected to kind of push on into that role, uh, as well as Rory O'Loughlin providing a bit of depth there as well. Brian Byrne, really good hooker, uh, who went to Bristol, is, is obviously left. And Barry Daly, who had an excellent try-scoring season, as I'm sure all Leinster fans will remember the season before last, he was really unlucky with injury. Uh, last time around so he's left the province along with um, Gavin Mullen a, a young prospect and the other guys who've been confirmed before were Sal and Noah, Jack Anger and, and Oshin Dowling so all in all for Leinster they've done exactly what they wanted to do and even just announcing it in one big block is is it makes it all the more impressive Yeah business as usual for them Bernard but as Murray says it's actually just nice to have those tied up and knowing that you can go into this upcoming hectic schedule with the bulk of the players that have gotten to gotten you to this point yeah and it's it's as, as murray says the way Leinster do business is, i don't really know many clubs who who do it like this year on year most clubs are delighted to just get some positive news out you know on, on a on a weekly or bi-weekly or monthly basis when they when they re-sign somebody um i suppose Leinster get enough positivity from their from their performances and results <laughs> and um it's just another sign of of like what a 
unbelievably cohesive, um, I suppose, place to uh, to operate in from a from a coaching and from a, a playing point of view. And you know, you look how many have come through. Um, you know, dom- the domestic competition or domestically um, homegrown, come through the academy and then into into the senior team. And uh, as Murray said, they very rarely you know lose anybody that they don't want to, and they're very rarely in the press. Um, you don't even see you know very rarely see a Leinster player being linked anywhere else uh, when they're, when they're off contract. And I think that's probably you know credit to to guys to be and Mick Dawson in terms of how they how they run this. And and these deals would have been some of these deals would have been signed you know in in late 2019, but they they just keep it all all under wraps and and they announce it in one go. And um, I think it's a great way to do business if if you can when when players you know are are so happy in the environment that. Um, they don't look around elsewhere. Even if all of the deals were kind of negotiated in uh, a staggered format uh, over the course of several months, going back to late 2019, as you say, how much of an undertaking is it to be negotiating with 28 different people? Like, how many people would be involved on the Leinster side of things, Bernard, in an undertaking like that? Uh, And what are the kind of difficulties in... Um, in in simply having to do it with so many players uh, over the course of one season or even half a season. Yeah, I think to be honest, you're always, uh, you know, every every province will be kind of run around, or every team, professional team, will be run around the same number. Um, and you know, probably the hardest ones were the were the ones that they let go, the Brian Burns, the Barry Daly's, the Joe Tamani's, because you know those conversations um, are, are never easy. But uh, like I think. If you look at it, I think Guy Easterby handles a lot of this, and I mean, you know, it will be incredibly uh, a huge amount of work dealing with with players, agents, with the players directly, um, and then obviously you got to go back to the uh, to the money men, um, and then obviously you got to you know be in constant communication with the with the rugby department, and, and obviously Leo and, and Stuart um, would be you know would be having a huge say in, in terms of. You know how those negotiations go as well. So I suppose Guy is probably the glue in the middle of, as I said, from a playing point of view, the player and his agent or, or parents for for the younger players probably, and then obviously, you know, for deals like uh, James Ryan and uh, and Gary Ringrose, you know, if the IRFU added to that, and then uh, for the for the non international contract players, it's the it's the uh, the money men in in Leinster and um, and obviously the rugby department and the, like these things. Even the ones that go really well, um, you know, it's never done over one meeting, um, and you know, that's the that's the the challenge. But like Leinster have it down to a, to a fine art, and um, as I said, it helps when you have so many players who have come from this from this this area, um, and when the, when the team are successful, and you're chasing silverware, and you know if you can break into that team, you're going to have a real good shot at playing international rugby. Um, it's a lot easier to get a deal done than than a place that's maybe not um, as stable as you would like or challenging for um, for for trophies. So uh, look, at it, it's definitely a lot of work, and I think Guy does a brilliant job. Um, and you know, it's really I suppose for for people listening in, yeah, he's he's basically got a lot of different stakeholders that um, he needs to keep up to date and uh, and negotiate with. Um, on an ongoing basis and uh yeah i'd say he's you know he's on the phone um a lot every day even in back in in december january around around getting these things done but i think again it's testament to him that um 
you know, to, to do 28 uh, and to have them, and even the departures that, that we mentioned, all without really any issue, bar I suppose Solano in the in the media, um, you know, is is phenomenally is phenomenally impressive. Mm, the pesky media, Murray. Uh, team news, a couple of months out now from action, obviously, but the uh, squads of both Leinster and Munster returned to training this week, and there were injury updates and the likes. Just while we're on the topic of Leinster, two very key figures uh, ruled fit, having received injuries pre-lockdown. Yeah, Keane Healy and Gary Ringrose were injured during the Six Nations and they're fully fit now to return to training, which is excellent news. You want to get off to the perfect start, particularly because this preseason is so important with all that rugby that's ahead. The SNC people are a lot happier that they, they're getting the eight weeks or seven weeks probably um, training time that they had fears it might be a bit shorter. There was a lot of talk about the season 2019-20 kind of coming back earlier but it is a decent stint to get players fit durable again after a really extended break so great news for them as I mentioned Conor O'Brien's back from the hamstring injury and back the lads who's probably going to get even more opportunity than expected is is fully recovered from a back injury and um, Dan Levy we'd heard before the kind of before the or as the lockdown began really he was close to getting back into training he's in the final stages of his running rehab now and that's obviously caused a lot of excitement for Leinster and Ireland fans he's world class when he's at his best as we know from 2018 had that horror injury last year but it's just been a, a brilliant recovery and, and a great story that he's going to be back and um, it'll be fascinating to see how he plays and how he he manages his way through that return to the pitch but with his mindset you would you would back him to make an impact the other little bit of info was James Lowe still being back in New Zealand for personal reasons is how Leinster termed it um, and he'll have to self-isolate when he gets back for 14 days, according to the current government guidelines. So probably not ideal in terms of his uh, return to the season, but they'll hope to have him back on Irish soil, obviously sooner rather than later. Um, and then, as we said, they've got that great squad to work with. So loads of those are good news for them in terms of those injuries. And, and Levy being back is one to get excited about. Certainly is. Uh, Munster back in action as well, as we said. And I suppose that the... Headline from their own update is the fact that Joey Carberry will be ruled out until September, which on the one hand is, is frustrating, Murray, for Monster fans in that he will miss those couple of Interpros in August. But at the same time, you know, I don't think anybody is, is going to be necessarily tearing their hair out if they make sure that Joey Carberry is actually fit again to play properly. Yeah, definitely the right thing to do. Get him back on the pitch when he's fully, fully 100% fit fully durable again so there's not going to be any other circumstances of misfortune as I suppose he had with the wrist you want to get that ankle spot on and I suppose that's probably the one that they're being really careful with and really um, diligent with it'll be brilliant to have him back on the pitch when that happens we don't know obviously if it's in September we'll be potentially straight in for semi-finals and final of a Pro 14 is that the right circumstances to, to launch it back in there remains to be seen but good that he's nearing his return and that Tyburn will be fit for the start of the season as will Keith Earls, Damien Dialende and Calvin Nash who had short-term injuries so pretty positive news from, from Munster's point of view obviously Carberry um, you would hope he'll be fully ready to go whenever that is and then John Ryan has to come back from a, a minor shoulder operation and um, he's the only other one Chris Clute and CJ Sander they just got back recently from South Africa so they have to do that 14 days so they're um, slightly delayed but Again, all in all, it, it just it's nice getting these updates and looking forward to who's going to be back, who's going to be playing, figuring out team sheets and, and squad depth charts and things like that. It just adds to the sense of anticipation. 
It certainly does. Sticking with yourself, Murray, then, let's talk about the IRFU slash RPI pay dispute. And I know there'll be people tuned into this who are absolutely allergic to this particular yeah. topic because it's just numbers and percentages and of course people's livelihoods are, are being affected but at the same time if you're just a sports fan maybe you don't want to necessarily hear of the minutiae of all of that um i, I don't know could you give us a, a kind of a brief overview of what's been happening so far and i, I guess the the latest development quote unquote yesterday which really w- wasn't a development at all in that they've kind of they're still at an impasse basically and it's going to motor on into next week at least yeah, so to start at the the lockdown of rugby, the pause of rugby, the RFU put all staff onto a pay deferral scheme ranging from 10% to 50%, depending on what that person was earning. So obviously the players with the higher earnings took a, a bigger deferral. At the end of this month, the RFU are keen to move on to a, a pay cut scheme. And I mean, they've probably flagged already that that was a, a reality as we're seeing around the rest of the game. But Rugby Players Ireland were actually initially they were fr- annoyed with the RFU because um, the RFU were quoted in a, a report in the Irish Times about this um, and there hadn't been a proposal put in front of Rugby Players Ireland at that point so there was a frustration there I think players were a little bit alarmed by it um, and the the hold up I guess is that Rugby Players Ireland um, are keen to probably study the RFU's accounts and, and get a better understanding of exactly where they are in their financial position. Philip Brown, the CEO of the RFU, has come out in the media several times now and, and stressed how demanding the current lockdown of rugby, the lack of match day revenues is for the RFU, that they're you know they're burning through all this money. But the RPI are, are keen just to see exactly where those cash reserves are and, and what the financial situation is exactly. So um, the RFU, by all accounts, have actually opened up their books to to let them see that. There's been a bit of a, a payment to the RFU recently with the CVC money, which we discussed. That was a, a 5.5 million um, in instalment pretty recently. And the RFU sold lands in, in Newlands, obviously, there uh, relatively recently. They say that was invested into a property on, on Lansdowne Road. So there's a number of issues there. There's been obviously the grant from the, the government as well for 40 million to a, a number of sports that the RFU may um, avail a, a big chunk of that so there's just a, a a need for the rpi to get an understanding of where they are if you are financially before there's any agreement or potential agreement made it's it's kind of rumbling on now for several weeks there they met yesterday but there was no decision reached in terms of what might happen with the salary reductions um and they're going to meet again next week but it's getting a little bit more urgent now because the rfu are obviously keen to get this um, in place before the end of the month really that they, they want to end the pay deferral scheme at the end of june so it'll be really interesting to see what happens next next week and it is a little bit different to what usually happens because obviously the relationship between the rfu and the rpi has been so strong and uh, they often work very well together but this time there's a little bit more dispute a little bit more tension probably in the negotiations and and that's understandable i guess given the the, the topic of it but yeah as you say i don't think too many people listening are, are going to have too much sympathy around this. Obviously, you don't want anyone losing out on wages, but it's a re- it's a, a reality for everyone in the world at the moment with, with what's going on. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, Bernard, uh, as Murray says, like there are more tensions involved in this particular negotiation between both parties. But I wonder, without and I'm, I'm kind of coming from this completely from the outside, but I wonder, is it just the case that 
a matter as delicate as this does take time and even you know maneuvers such as opening up your accounts and things like that the number of people who would have to approve that all of these kind of things literally just take days upon days to, to put together and if it is being as or if the IRFU are being as transparent as to open their accounts to the RPI uh, maybe next week might be the week where where some sort of a an arrangement will be made yeah absolutely I think um, you know the RPI have have um, Kieran Medler, I believe, um, from BDO, who's who's you know highly respected and, and trusted um, advisor to a, to a lot of the players and, and to that union. And I think you know he's the one that they've asked can can have a look at the RFU's accounts. I think you know as Murray mentioned, there is a really good relationship historically between you know the RFU and and Rugby Players Ireland. Plus, there's a really good relationship between the RFU and the, and and the players. I mean. Um, generally things you know happen really smoothly here and the players are very well looked after and, and understand that I suppose you know this is when you know players uh, need the RPI to to really I suppose stand up and represent them and and when I say that I mean in, in terms of understanding exactly you know the the pressures uh, and the extent of those pressures that I suppose the employer is under and then come back and feed that back to to the players, so that they have full, I suppose, a full picture and an understanding of, of why, um, you know, and to what extent these these pay cuts are, are needed. Um, so I don't see it as being, you know, a war. I just see it as being, um, you know, part of of what's necessary for people to, uh, for players to accept, you know, um, you know, pay cuts on on contracts that they they've signed and, um. You know, I, I I expect the deal to get done, and, and often these things get done, you know, late in the day. But um, it, the most important thing is is that transparency that that everybody is looking for, and um, and I think when when that happens, you know, I, I I'd imagine there will be some kind of of pay cuts, um, and and players will will accept those if if they, you know if they do accept them, they'll they'll accept them with full kind of knowledge of. Of where the where the there if you're coming from, but again, as I said, uh, the great thing is there's a there's a trust there and there's 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 a strong relationship. And even though there might be been a little bit um, of signs of a cracking out over the last couple of weeks, I think that's natural. You know, uh, um, it's a very you know content, uh, contentious issue and it's a very painful thing. So uh, as as uh, as most of the country have experienced, so I do expect it to get sorted um, and you know for that relationship maybe even to get stronger again. Um, post this. What's the story in France then, Bernard? Is everything smooth over there, or uh, is it a little bit of a bumpier road uh, in the equivalent discussions? I think worldwide, you know, the game is is going through a massive readjustment in terms of in terms of salaries and wages. Um, you know, the, in England, there's been you know lots of lots of talk and lots of dispute, and we've seen clubs like Sale, you know, manage to recontract everybody, um, you know, within four or five days, and then other clubs are are, are kind of. Um, struggling a little bit to to manage the expectations of the players and, and to to get deals done. I suppose uh, from my point of view, just to give an insight into the reality, you know, um, of if you're not on contract, it's an incredibly tough place at the moment. So if you're off contract and you were looking for a move to France as a as a foreign player, um, I three deals that I'm aware of, I would say. Those players have taken a 70% pay cut um, on average uh, uh, to stay in the game, to to get a chance to stay professional, um, and obviously for some of them it was a, a move to France. Um, 
was what what they wanted. But uh, you know, while players who are currently under contract, you know, some French clubs are looking at five percent, some French clubs are looking at twenty percent. But I would say the reality of the market, um, and look, it's it's very extreme because the transfer deadline is about a week away. So the clubs know anybody who's um, who's not signed up by now probably has very little little choice. But yeah, the, you know, they're they're probably looking at, at earning. Um, yeah, thirty percent of what they earned last year. So that's just that's just the market. And, and again, uh, you know, I, I got to be careful and say, you know, you do get better deals done this time of year, anyway. Um, because as I said, generally it's people who don't have much choice. But it wouldn't be any, in my experience, it's never been as discounted as, as that. So um, yeah, the market is particularly tough uh, for. It's very tough for players who are under contract, but it's it's a hell of a lot worse for players who aren't. Yeah, it does sound like a tricky one, Murray. I know, um, even generally speaking, no, you know, with or without a pandemic, if if players are without contract, particularly, I suppose, younger players who are kind of caught in that purgatory between being like an an academy player and a and a fully professional first team player, um, it can be difficult for them to to find a landing spot. But you'd wonder what the repercussions are going to be um, over the coming months and perhaps even over the next couple of years. For a lot of those guys who are just caught in between two clubs, so to speak, or, or find, find themselves without a club, and if they don't, you know, find a, a place to play in the next week or in the next however length of time, uh, whatever length of time, uh, you know, I wonder will, will we see a lot more players departing the sport over the next uh, couple of years than we have seen in in the more recent past? Yeah, I think that's uh, a likely possibility, and. Even I've spoken to a couple of guys, even recently Owen McKeown, who left Connacht and hasn't secured something else and isn't quite sure what he's going to do. He's planning for life after Obi already while still hoping that something might turn up in the next while and that he can play on. So that's an example of where a lot of guys are probably at the moment. It is a really strange time in the sport and um, even harder than ever for that player who maybe doesn't have the the biggest profile or isn't an international player but it's affecting all of them and uh, like I'm just I'm just after reading actually about earlier on about rugby Australia and, and the ongoing I suppose turmoil over there there's potential now the Daily Telegraph are reporting over in Australia that players actually might request early contract releases as rugby Australia look to extend on their 40% pay cuts because they simply don't have any money as we as has been well flagged the Aussies are really in financial trouble so, I mean, that could potentially change the global game if you get a couple more Wallabies coming on the market and and someone signs them up in September. So I suppose you can understand, again, from the Irish players' point of view, the RFU situation appears to be very different to Rugby Australia's. The RFU seems to be, relatively speaking, quite um, wealthy and in a better position. So they're just trying to shore up trying to shore up exactly where the RFU are before before they agree to anything. Let's end on a, a brighter note then, a more whimsical note. Um, you mentioned Australia. What about the kangaroos of rugby league against the All Blacks? Negotiations have taken place for a match to take place. 14 aside, I think the game would take place in Australia. I've seen some people on Twitter say it's a bad idea. What's the point? My own personal leaning without really having given it any thought. So I apologize if I'm completely wrong. But I think it could be a bit of fun. I like the jeopardy of it in that whoever loses 
it kind of shits all over their sport a little bit. Like there is a little bit on the line, even though it'll you know be essentially a friendly. Uh, do you have any thoughts on it whatsoever? Uh, from my point of view, I I I was excited by the idea. I mean, there's a lot of people giving out, of course, as with anything in life. But which rugby union fan wouldn't watch this, even if only out of a kind of curiosity? And likewise for league fans, and there's always that debate over which is the better sport. It would be riveting to to see them play. I. Personally, like this has happened a lot. We've heard this story come up several times, and it's never happened. So I'd be pretty shocked if it if it did end up taking place. But I guess all sports are looking at ways to make money, as much money as they possibly can, over the next couple of years to compensate for what's happened, um, and probably to just grow their sports. There's been that realization in union that it needs to probably grow and be more uh, appealing to to many more fans. This was probably one little avenue of doing that. It would be. Uh, as I say, just an interesting matchup. We've obviously had the clash of codes before, Wigan and Bath. They actually replayed it on Sky Sports recently. They played in a, a two-headed a two-headed tie in 1996. It was one rugby league game, one rugby union game. Wigan hammered Bath in the rugby league game. I think it was 82-6 or 82-3, and then Bath beat them well in the union game, something like 44-20. I, I don't have their score in front of me, but it was. Um, it was really interesting to, to look back on that and, and seeing it happen. Obviously, a, a very different era, but yeah, you'd have to figure out exactly how it would work. But I've even been looking at the NRL in the last few weeks and going, wow, these are, especially the Australian guys, these are incredible athletes, a lot of them. It would have been fascinating if some of them had stayed in union and the Wallabies would have been much stronger. But to see them go up against each other in some format, I would definitely tune in to watch that. Uh, I think it would be exciting. You'd have to figure out exactly how the rules work so it was fair. And I don't know how many of the rugby union props might feature although i'm sure some of them will will uh, bemoan that comment there it will be interesting <laughs> to see uh, who you'd pick exactly but um i ha- certainly had my curiosity peaked bernard are you interested in it or are you an absolute curmudgeon like some of the people on twitter <laughs> <laughs> um i'm sure i am in certain things but i i am i am in favor of this uh i do remember the wigan bath game and and been fascinated by that and um, you know, the biggest thing was the gulf in terms of conditioning, uh, probably then. But I think obviously now it wouldn't be as extreme. And um, you know, I, I think I think it'd be great. Yeah, it'd be just something different. Um, you know, to to attract you know sport fans in, into into watching. You know, the All Blacks um, obviously would represent Rugby Union, and um, you know, the Kangaroos are you know have the potential to be uh, to pick an unbelievable side. And a lot of those lads have. Have backgrounds of playing dual code as well, so um, yeah, I'd be for it to be honest. And again, I, I'm not sure it'll happen, and I don't think it'll, it'll happen in the short to medium term. But yeah, I would, I definitely pay for view if if, if if that was the only way of watching it. Because it would be fascinating to see. It could be Caelan Ponga against the All Blacks because there was a bit of talk about him potentially. He's a the rugby league star, I guess, for people who haven't followed as much. I'm a big f- fan of watching his play. I think he'd be brilliant in rugby union. And there was a bit of chatter about him potentially coming back over at some stage, having played a bit of union in his youth. He's born in Australia, but grew up a bit in, in New Zealand. So you have loads of guys like that who, as Bernard says, have a bit of background in union and would probably love a cut off them. And the collisions certainly wouldn't leave any wanting, anyone wanting either. No, certainly wouldn't. Would it be right in saying that Australia is the optimal location for this out of the two available options in that I have a sense and again it could be wrong that if the all blacks were welcoming the kangaroos a lot of kiwis wouldn't really give much of a shit about it like wouldn't lend much credence to to the kangaroos and their sort of um 
I don't know, legendary status within within their sport. Whereas the All Blacks probably are more of a global brand. Australians would be familiar with them anyway from having an eye on Union when they were interested in it a few years back. Does it seem like a bigger deal if it takes place in, on Aussie soil than New Zealand soil, Bernard? Yeah, I think it does. But I, you know, I suppose the ideal scenario would be, uh, you know, um, home and away. Um, you know, to he, he played over two legs. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I can understand what you're saying. I mean, league is such a big game in Australia. And um, you'd imagine that the, the NRL fans would would love the opportunity to to see their team humiliate, um, you know, a, an international rugby union team, particularly um, a team as prestigious as the All Blacks. But uh, yeah, I, I think it have to, I'd rather see it over two legs, to be honest, than you know, one game in Auckland and 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 one in um, in Sydney. Home and away, put it on in Summer Bay, <laughs> and let the boys play. Murray and Bernard, thanks a million as always. Thanks, Gav. Thank you. Thanks, William. Thanks everybody at home as well for listening. We'll be back with a members podcast next week and we'll be back as well next Thursday with this regular podcast until then have a good weekend and take it easy Oh, man.